0: Twenty-seven, thirteen through 14, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Father, I I thank you for your word, and I'm so grateful that talking about a topic like we are today on suffering, we don't have to look outside of your word to understand suffering, to, to talk about it, to walk through it, but rather your word is just replete with examples of real life suffering that happens in a world that is broken by sin. And specifically, I'm, I'm grateful for the Psalms this week. Just the ways in which it talks about the real pain of life, it doesn't gloss over it with some veneer of faith, but actually speaks honestly about our experience. And, and I'm grateful for these two verses. These two verses that in some ways function as something that we can aspire to in our suffering. To be able to look to you and say that we believe we will see your goodness again. God, in our suffering, that's, that's, that's the posture we want to have. And so I pray that today, as, as we talk about the things that are necessary in order to have that posture, God, I pray that you would help us. God, I pray that your spirit would, in all that we have to talk about today, would, would pick out a few things that would stick with us and that we could hold on to and actually begin to practice and believe even in the midst of suffering. So God, would you unite your power with my weak words and teach us what we need to to walk through pain faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, today we are finishing up our short series on the dark night of the soul that we've entitled, I Lift My Eyes. Uh, And today we're, we're finishing it up by talking about the experience of suffering. Over the last couple weeks, we've talked about sin, what to do when sin seems to be going nowhere, when we feel stuck. Last week, we talked about doubt. And then now, this week, one of the other things that causes the dark night of the soul is suffering. And to start us off, I'm actually going to break one of the rules that my preaching mentor gave me. I'm going to read you a very long quote, a very long quote. And it tells the the true story of a woman in suffering. I I know it's long and I intentionally did not put it on the screen because I want you to to tune in. So just stick with me here and tune in and hear this testimony. So this is a, a testimony recorded in Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And Mary tells her story this way. Both my parents were destroyed by alcoholism. I was three when they divorced. Now my mother loved me and tried her best, but drinking became her refuge. Binges and craziness were the norm. I was repeatedly locked out of my house for such things as losing a piano competition or dumping vodka down the drain, and often had to break the basement window to get back inside. But I was 17 when Jesus found me. A friend invited me to church, and I clung to the minister's reassuring words of God's unfailing love. I was hopeful my life would change. Then I married a man six years my senior. At first, our relationship comforted me, but he became violent. I was hit repeatedly, once with a dog chain. I was strangled, kicked in the stomach, and pushed off a dock down the steps. Unbelievably, I convinced myself I still loved him. At 23, I found my father again. I thought he would protect and defend me, so I left my husband. Instead, my father sexually abused me. I plummeted into utter despair and attempted suicide. Failing at suicide, I screamed at God for allowing me to live. Where was he? I sought counseling with an extremely intelligent, kind, young deacon. After a year, we fell in love, but he was already married. We struggled and pleaded with God for help, but ultimately we gave in to sin. He divorced and we were married. We did not deserve the blessing of three beautiful children that God gave us. For the first time, I had a family. But my children were under six when I began experiencing severe headaches, hearing loss, and partial facial paralysis. A specialist discovered a massive brain tumor. Parts of the tumor still remain inoperable today and are now causing new complications. I remember feeling strangely calm, though. Though our lives were turned upside down, at least my family was still intact. My children grew, and though they were brought up in the church, they were also becoming strongly influenced by the world. All were arrested at some point. The youngest son was diagnosed with a schizophrenic disorder. The oldest was incarcerated for two years. We were devastated. And then shortly after, my husband suffered two strokes, leaving his personality drastically altered. I discovered our finances were in ruin. We eventually lost our home. I was so crushed, I could barely speak to a therapist. Mary says, life has not changed, but God is changing me. What I discovered about heartaches and problems, especially the ones that are way beyond what we can handle, is that maybe those are the problems he does permit precisely because we cannot handle them or the pain and anxiety they cause. But he can. I think he wants us to realize that trusting him to handle these situations is actually a gift. His gift of peace to us in the midst of craziness. Problems don't disappear and life continues, but he replaces the sting of those heartaches with hope, which has been an amazing realization. I've come to believe that life will not always be as it is now. I find even more comfort in being able to stop focusing on all the heartaches and focus on the one who will someday take heartache away completely. I spent my entire life looking for and never finding a recipe to go from despair to hope. It did not come from anything I did or didn't do. Hope comes not in the solution to the problem, but in focusing on Christ who facilitates the change. That's a brutal testimony, friends. This woman, Mary, has endured a collective of all the things we most fear. Abuse, disease, manipulation, loneliness, wayward children. And yet, she ends it with a message of hope. And my honest question for us today as we talk about suffering is how 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 in the world can Mary endure such pain and suffering and yet with honesty close her testimony with a message of hope? And a a retelling of the ways that her pain has actually brought her closer to Jesus. How can she say that and be telling the truth? How can she recount her pain and still remain close to Jesus? Or even the the scripture reading we just read through. How do we get there? If, If you read the rest of Psalm 27, you see that the writer is in great pain. And yet his closing words focus on the hope that he has that he will once again look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living, meaning what he believes there is that at some point before he dies, he's going to see and rejoice in God's goodness again. Despite the pain that he recounts in the rest of the psalm. And that belief, as you saw, gives him great strength and courage to wait upon the Lord to do just that. How? How in the world does someone go through pain and suffering and yet still close their testimony with hope? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Now, today, like I said, is the end of our I Lift My Eyes series. And over the last couple of weeks... We've talked about walking through doubt and walking through sin that never seems to go away. And when preaching on the topic of besetting sin, Ben did a great job of providing a framework and an explanation for how sin can be so sticky at times. If you remember his, his section on source idols and how they move us towards sin, that was great. Great. And even, la- even last week, I-, I tried to explain exactly what doubt is and kind of tease out how some of that affects our life and relationship with God and, and what to do in order to begin to kind of walk out of it. The last two weeks have been very explanation heavy, but for today, on the topic of suffering, it's going to be a lot less explanation heavy. And that's because I don't need to explain a lot to you when it comes to the suffering of this world. <laughs> I don't need to explain why suffering creates darkness. That's easy to see. You know that. But what I do want to do, what I feel like I I need to do, is provide you with some things that can help you actually walk through that darkness. And so so for today, I want to talk about three things that we can do or embrace in the midst of suffering that will allow us to walk through it faithfully and actually come through it with hope. And again, you know, these verses that I read in Psalm 27, 13 through 14, uh, I read those as a kind of, this is what we're aspiring to. (laughs) These these aren't actually the verses that we're going to go through in the sermon, but this is what the goal is. And and the question of the sermon is, what needs to happen in order for us to walk through suffering and arrive at that place, to believe that you will see the goodness of the Lord or to arrive in the same place that Mary did? walking through suffering and still having hope. And so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about these three things and these three things that we should do in the midst of suffering. And, and these three things, they, they kind of function as a triangulation, triangulation of how to live the Christian life properly in, in all spaces, but especially in suffering. One revolves around right feeling, addressing what we're feeling. One revolves around right belief, and then the other right practice. So let's let's jump in and let's talk about right feeling. The first thing we should do when we're walking through suffering, if we wanna come out on the other side believing in God's goodness, is that we should focus on uh, how to process our emotions rightly. How to process our emotions rightly. Now, Now one thing that sets Christianity apart from its religious counterparts is how it deals with human emotions. In some, in some other religions, the existence of emotion is something to overcome. Now, like, like the goal of nirvana in Buddhism, for, for instance, is, is basically an existence that is free from striving and simply is. Be, being free of emotions that often cause so much trouble or much of some of the most popular philosophy throughout history is, is built around the rejection of emotions. Stoicism, for instance says that the good life, the one we should all seek, is the one that is filled with pure objectivity and and is free from the trouble of emotions. And it's understandable, to me at least, why these worldviews would have such a negative view of emotions. Emotions can be such a point of pain and trouble. Anyone else? Both your emotions and the one who's experiencing emotions towards you. (laughs) Emotions can be such trouble, but despite the difficulty that they can create, the Christian scriptures don't reject emotion. They don't reject emotion. Rather, emotion, as it lays out in the Bible, is is a piece of what it means to be made in the image of God. That as human beings, we are made in the image of God to reflect his glory and his grace. And part of what that means is that we are not just rational beings. We're not just brains on a stick. If we were just brains on a stick, we wouldn't image forth and reflect the God that actually is. God is not just a rational being, but one that scripture shows feels certain things, certainly in different ways than we do, but he feels certain things. And so to be made in the image of God requires that we ourselves have emotion. But as you can probably tell and you probably know, the image of God in us is not perfectly seen, right? It is broken. It is not reflected in the right way. It is broken by sin and fractured by troubles. Our capacity to reflect the glory of God has been broken, and that brokenness includes our emotional life. Our emotions are there because we are made in the image of God, but our emotions are also broken because the image of God in us is corrupted by sin. And in this category of suffering specifically, What are some ways that that this brokenness can affect our emotional life? When when we're in suffering, what are some ways that we emote wrongly? Well, one way, and one way that I find most often in Christians, is actually through the absence of emotion. Or at least the attempt to be absent of emotion. Our, Our brokenness can react to our suffering by creating in us a desire to repress our emotions, We just want to push it down. (laughs) Many of us are so afraid of what we feel that we would just rather not feel anything at all. We're afraid to let our emotions have their voice because we're afraid that if we do, it's going to drown out everything in life, right? And so we hold back our emotions out of a fear that they will overtake us. But, But many of us also hold back our emotions or repress them because we mistakenly believe that that's the holy thing to do. And I want to say that again, we mistakenly believe that repressing our emotions is the holy thing to do. We repress what we feel because deep down, we kind of know that our emotions are tangled with all types of sin and all types of confusion and desperation, and so we just refuse to untangle that web and would rather not risk sinning against God, which is a great thing to have. But friends... Repressing our emotions is not holy. Repressing our emotions is not holy. Holding back our emotions in the midst of suffering is not holy. Dampening down what we feel because we're afraid that God can't handle them is a mistake. All throughout Scripture, We see instances of of human beings making known to God what they're feeling all throughout it. And they let God know with a full vent of their emotions. They let God know. If if you're looking for an example of how to temper and meter your emotions, I would not suggest looking at the Bible. So, so for instance, think with me about Job. Job is the main character of the story in the middle of the Bible who, who loses everything for seemingly no reason. His children, his wealth, his, his own health is taken from him. And the story of Job makes clear that he deserved none of it. He did nothing wrong. And in, in the beginning of the story, Job makes clear that he deserved none of it. And in the beginning of the story, Job also comes out as this character who, who seems to be just content to praise God and trust him even in the midst of great loss. And that that faith stays throughout the book, but as the story goes on, it begins to get mixed with some honesty about what he's feeling. There's moments in the story of Job that he begins to direct his emotions toward God. He expresses lament before God that any of this happens, and he allows his emotions to come before God raw. In other words, he's honest about what he's feeling before God. And the interesting thing is at the end of the story, God commends Job. There are certain moments where God humbles Job, but he also commends him. Despite Job's up and down journey, exploring and expressing his, his emotions, God commends him in the end. God doesn't shut down what he's feeling. Or consider with me the, uh, this uh, in the middle of the Psalms, Psalm 88. If you've read the Psalms, you know that they themselves are filled with emotion. It's got all the ups and downs of real life and one of those ups and downs is the moments of of deep pain. But a lot of the times where the Psalms talks about deep pain, it usually ends with some refrain about praising God, about believing God is going to come through, kind of like the one that we just read. But Psalm 88 is unique because it's a Psalm about deep pain that doesn't actually end with a positive no. Listen to how the psalmist ends in Psalm 88. He says, "O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I am afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer from your terrors. I am helpless. These things surround me like a flood all day long and they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness, is my only companion. End of Psalm. That's the end of it. The closing words of that Psalm is, darkness is my only companion. And God let that stay in the Bible. <laughs> the, the Psalms are meant to be the worship book of the people of Israel. And God let that stay there. No positive spin. No faking it. Just real, honest emotion. Darkness is my only friend. And God says, sometimes that's the right thing to say. Sometimes that's the right thing to read. All of this, friends, is a a lesson for those of us who would rather repress our emotions and suffering. That God is not afraid of what you're feeling. God is big enough to handle the full weight of your sorrow, your depression, and your sense of hopelessness. And one of the ways that we process our emotions rightly in the midst of suffering is by expressing all of our emotions toward God. We don't repress them because again, it is not holy. One of the ways we make it through suffering is we, we process our emotions honestly and rightly before God. Because here's the truth, friends, God only deals with the real you. The emotions that you're feeling and that you want to shut down, it doesn't matter how much you want to shut it down. God only deals with the real you. That's the one he will address. That's the one he will work with. And so our call is to be honest. We allow him to address the real us because again, that's the only way God deals with us. We process our emotions rightly. Not repressing them, but giving them full vent before a God who can handle them invites us to be honest with him. That's how we deal with with right feeling in the midst of suffering. We let our emotions be vented to God. But also, if we're going to make it through and have an ending to the story like Mary had, we also have to have right belief. We have to believe something that's true. (laughs) In order to get to a place like that story in the beginning or to get to this place like in Psalm 27 about believing you will see the goodness of the Lord, we must have right belief. But but right belief about what? This. We must believe that suffering is actually going to do something. We must believe that suffering is there for something. That it's meaningful and not random, it's meaningful, and, and that again even is unique to Christianity. The idea that suffering can actually be meaningful, especially in our secular world. Our secular world is, just wants to get through suffering, but has no capacity, no capacity to see the usefulness of suffering. <laughs> suffering in our secular world is just due to chance or even psychosis, And so suffering is often painted as something that we just have to get through and eventually escape. There's no hint that in the midst of suffering, something meaningful could actually be happening. But the Christian worldview says suffering is meaningful. It is producing something that would not be there otherwise. We must believe that suffering is meaningful, that it does things to us that wouldn't happen without it. Like what? What are some examples of that? Well, suffering can make us discontent with the world as it is today. It can lead us to see that things are not how they're supposed to be and put in us a longing for God to set things right. That's a good thing. That's a good thing to not be content with a world that's broken and fractured at the core. We should want something better. And often suffering helps us want that. Suffering can also humble us to have a right view of God. That's a good thing. I mean, there, there's a modern understanding of who God is, friends, and why he's there. That, that, that basically, that there's a basic belief that, that God exists in order to be our accomplice in creating a good, comfortable, easy life. God and why he's there is boiled down to simply being in our service. To the modern world, God is simply this really big hype man who's there to make us feel good, who's there to cosign on everything that we do. Suffering can humble that out of us, to see that God is not our accomplice. God is not there simply to co-sign on your life. God is not there simply to just give you a easy and comfortable life. Suffering can give you a bigger view of God than that. Or finally, suffering can create an endurance and resilience in us that otherwise wasn't there. And this resilience can actually lead to a relief from anxiety. I mean, listen to this from Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope so he says, suffering is able to produce endurance in us, which leads to character. And, and that character that is formed in the midst of suffering can lead to hope that actually frees us from some anxiety. You see, when we go through suffering and make it through it, we begin to see that what we were afraid of is maybe not as consequential or daunting as we thought. Anybody else? Anybody else been through suffering, went to the other side of it and been like, huh, that, that sucked? But I, was, I shouldn't have been so anxious about that. That's what suffering can do. Actually create hope in you so that the next time some suffering comes up, maybe you're less, anxi- you're, you're less anxious because, well, I've, I've been through hard things before and I've made it through. God has pulled me through. These are just examples of what, of what suffering can do. But the point is that we have to believe that suffering is meaningful. Meaningful. That it creates things in us that otherwise would not be there. We have to embrace that suffering's going to do something to you. So suffering is going to make you a different person. You can't go through suffering and come out neutral on the other side. It's either gonna change you and make you more jaded, cynical, anxious, or it's actually gonna change your character and make you into something more beautiful. We can believe that suffering is meaningful and not waste our suffering. What a waste that is. Anybody else ever wasted their suffering? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'll just confess to you. So 2020 was a hard year, right? Anybody else? Anybody else have a hard year in 2020? (laughs) Yes, thank you for the hand. (laughs) 2020 was horrible. And for me, it wasn't just COVID, it wasn't just a pandemic, but that was a time when I was living in Dallas, Texas, trying to move to Seattle in order to work at this church called Icon. And also at that time, I had to raise my own salary, and so I had to support raise during one of the worst financial crises of our time. Also, we were pregnant with our second baby. Also, we were having horrible family issues. It was a horrible year. And can I be totally honest with you, friends? I wasted that. I wasted that year because reflecting on it now, there wasn't much time where I, I sought God and said, what are you trying to produce in me here? What are you trying to create in me and teach me? Teach me? I'll be totally honest with you. I just tried to hunker down and make it through. <laughs> just make it through 2020. Get to 2021 and that'll be better. And boy, is that a lie. I wasted that suffering. It did nothing for my character. It did nothing eventually for my joy. And that's a real regret I have. And we should hear that as well, that if we, if we don't seek the meaning of suffering, if we don't let it do something in us, then eventually it's just gonna be wasted and maybe even make us into a more cynical, jaded person, which none of us want. Okay, I gotta move on this last one really quickly. So... So far we've talked about right feeling and and right belief in the midst of our suffering, but what about right practice? What's a practice that we should give ourselves to in order to make it through suffering and retain a sense of our hope that, again, we will see the goodness of God despite what we're going through? It should be the practice of community. The right practice in suffering is community. I mean, in order to make it through suffering with our faith intact, we have to suffer alongside others. We have to be with other people. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is the Apostle Paul himself. Just kind of at a high level, all throughout the New Testament, Paul is writing letters to the churches that he helped start, and he's writing these letters usually from prison, usually in some hardship. That's a lesson. The vast majority of the words penned in the New Testament were done with a hand that was shackled. That itself is a lesson. But Paul is writing these, place, these letters from a place of pain. And, and one of the things he most often does at the end of his letters is reference those who are with him and suffering alongside him. The people who are there giving him strength. In fact, only once in the New Testament does Paul lament that he's actually alone in his suffering. The vast majority of the time, he is with other faithful Christians and is being ministered to by them. Paul never suffered alone, and because of that, he was able to endure. Endurance in our suffering is directly tied to our sense of connectedness with other Christians that can help bear the burden with us. None of us can make it long on our own. In fact, one of my... Favorite illustrations of this? This is going to be super out of left field. And this is not in my notes, but I'm just going to do it. Um, So I'm a five on the Enneagram. Anybody know what that means? It means I love random things and going on a really deep dive of stuff. Uh, And so there's a podcast called Stuff You Should Know. Uh, And it's usually like an hour-long podcast of just the most random things. And so it just, it it hits a piece of my heart that I love. And so I love that podcast. And I remember a couple years ago, I was listening to one that was on Coyote's. It was fascinating, just this this deep dive on coyotes. And one of the things they talked about is how coyotes might be one of the most resilient species on the face of the planet. The United States, all throughout its history, about three or four times, has put forth a concerted effort to solve the coyote problem, if not eradicate it, with millions of dollars and the US government behind it. And it has not worked. The coyotes are still here. Coyotes, you'll find them in the city, you'll find them in the wild. Very few places can you go throughout the U.S. and not find a coyote. But the reason for their resiliency is really interesting. So if you ever hear a coyote howl in the night, we often think that's just a a coyote doing coyote things, right? Um, but actually what's happening is that a coyote is sending up a howl waiting to hear other howls around it. And, it's t- and what it's doing is taking a census of the area, trying to see how many other coyotes are around me right now, trying to get a gauge of whether that coyote is alone or not. And what's even more fascinating, this is, <laughs> I'm going on a deep dive here, but just stay with me, that in the female coyote, if she howls and doesn't get the right amount of responses, gets a low number on the census, census, There's a hormone in her body that will make it to where she creates 16 to 25 puppies instead of the normal eight to 10. Fascinating. But all of that surrounds community. (laughs) The resiliency of coyotes, the reason why they've been able to make it and stand up against the US government (laughs) is because they stay connected. It's because they run in a pack, they have a pack Mindset, and the same is is true for Christians. That following Jesus in all of life, let alone in suffering, has to be done in community. In order to make it through suffering and walk out with a sense of hope, we must have other Christians who are bearing the burden with us. Gosh, we gotta have someone who will weep with us, someone who will hold our pain safely. Someone who maybe, back to the other one, about the uses of suffering, who might be able to be an objective party who can say, maybe this is what God is doing in your life. We need community to make it through. And here's a kick or two. this is kind of my, one of my calls here. Don't wait until you suffer to find community. Get connected now. Making it through suffering with community requires that the depth of those relationships have in some ways already been established. Get into community. In order to make it through suffering, in order to say with honesty, with this psalmist, that you believe you will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, even when you're in suffering, in order to have a story like Mary that can recount every moment of devastating pain and still have a message of hope, we've got to feel things rightly. We've got to process our emotions honestly before God. We've got to believe things rightly. We really have to hold that God could be doing something in our life that's worth it. And we have to have right practice. We have to have community with others that we can walk with. Friends, listen. I know there's examples of suffering that are in this room. I know there are many of us who are maybe not walking through suffering, but suffering comes for us all. Suffering is coming. But friends, suffering doesn't have to ruin us. Suffering doesn't have to ruin us. If, if we will follow these ways, if we will give ourselves to right feeling, right belief, right practice, it can actually make something really beautiful. But most of all, friends, in suffering, we must believe that our God and our Savior is with us. Man, sometimes you just don't have the strength to feel rightly. Paul talks about that in Romans 8, groaning with words, with, with, with sounds too deep for words. Sometimes you don't have the strength or even the wisdom or understanding or insight to see what God could possibly be doing in your life. And sometimes you don't have the strength to stay connected with others because you're too in sorrow. But in that place, friends, you still have a God and Savior that is with you. That Jesus was a man of sorrows, the scripture says. Meaning not just that he encountered sorrow, but that he was a man of sorrow. He knew it deeply. And friends, there might be no other place that is charged with more potential to encounter Jesus than in our suffering, precisely because he knows it as well as we do. So if you're in a place and you've heard everything I've said today, you're like, I don't have the strength to do that, Josh. And just sit and let your your God and Savior minister to you with the understanding and the grace that he has. He's your shepherd, friend. He sees you. He's ready to care for you and minister to you. If you'll just receive his witness, even when you have nothing to offer, nothing to reciprocate. That's the gospel. You don't have to. Just let him come towards you and, and comfort you in your sorrow. You want to make it through suffering? Let Jesus attend to you because he's a really good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, Father, There are so many times where suffering is overwhelming. And in that state of being overwhelmed, everything I just said can feel like a burden. It can feel too hard. So I pray that for my friends here, anyone here who is in that space right now, Lord, I just pray that you would give them a special sense of your presence, of your loving heart towards them. I know it it myself, God, that your love, even when it doesn't solve the pain, so often it comforts our pain. And so for those of us here who are deep in sorrow, walking through suffering and and need you greatly, I, I pray that you would demonstrate your faithfulness and provide for us the shepherding care that we all need. God, would you help us in this darkness, whether it's from sin or from doubt or from suffering, God, would you light up our eyes with a vision of your love and your grace that can get us through. We trust you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online,